which means tis the season for reruns for you. <laughs> Is having something better than having nothing? You're going to be the judge of that, but today's episode is from over four years ago with one of my favorite musicians, and can't believe that in a strange turn of events, I got to interview Andrew Bird in 2019 at this music festival. I really fumbled the bag on this one. I was so stressed out. This was the last one of the day, and I think the batteries were dead, and you can hear so much background noise in it. We tried to clean it up as much as you could, but there's some like weird jumps because just big chunks of it were unlistenable. And yet, you know, I, I went back and listening back to it, I realized that the style of interview I was doing back then. I don't know if it was just that day or just in general, but it was this really like question, next question, here's the next question. Like, and I, I don't normally do that or I, I don't aim to do that. Maybe it was because we were in this crowded lounge or because I didn't have much time. And I think maybe all of those things are, are part of it. But some of the themes that we talked about, connection and it, it all feels kind of ominous knowing that, you know, in just several months there would be a pandemic. <laughs> Even there's this better help ad at the end. The code still works if you want to use it, but I left the ad in because it really felt like such a time capsule hearing this ad for better help because now, you know, blessings to better help and, and, and all the business they got. And I think they've really grown since 2019, but I I'm talking about like, you know, it's really cool to do therapy on the internet. It's this new thing. You don't have to go anywhere. And it's like, wow, that, that just feels so antiquated. It's now rare that people go, go back to an in-person therapist. So I'm going to play you a clip and by clip, I mean the entirety of this episode with Andrew Bird. He says a lot of incredibly wise and interesting things, and, and I, I want you to hear it. And, and the other reason why I thought he would be an excellent person to feature from the archive is because I'm not a really big holiday kind of guy, but I... I do like Andrew Bird's holiday album. <laughs> and I think the reason why I listened to his Christmas album, which came out in 2020, I stayed in Los Angeles that year for the first time ever. I didn't go back to Michigan and I hosted Christmas in my apartment that I'm standing in right now. I had just moved in. I didn't have many friends here and I had just made some new friends <laughs> at a garage sale and I invited them over for, for Christmas and I, I remember like going to cookbook and, and getting all these expensive wreaths made of bay leaves and, and flowers and fruit and pomegranate and I, I made this really beautiful spread in, in my new place and I listened to this album all day and the reason why I even listened to this album and the reason why I am thinking about this and decided to bring it up to you here now is because that week of, of Christmas, December 20th, because I just looked it back up, there's an episode of Mark Maron's podcast with Andrew Bird that I remember it so clearly. I'm, I'm in 
auditory learner. So if something is told to me and I have an emotional connection to it, there's a pretty good chance I will remember. And this episode really made an impact on me, I think for a couple of reasons, because Marin had lost his girlfriend, his partner, Lynn Sheldon, the director, earlier that year in 2020 at the very beginning of the pandemic, I think in March or April. And I remember following that story, you know, sort of closely. And I've, I've never been, I've never felt connected to a celebrity death like that or, or a death of someone that I don't know personally. But I, I had this parasocial relationship with Mark Marin for years. And in New York, a couple months before I left, I saw Lynn's film sort of trust with Marin starring in it. And I believe he made the score for it. And Caroline and I went to this movie and there was a talk back led by our friend Josh, Josh Radner, and who's done this podcast. And I think he had, we had had dinner with him the night before and he invited us to go, to go see this film that he was, you know, leading a conversation with the director, Lynn and, and Mark Marin. So, so we meet them there, we see the film, and then several months later, COVID happens, and I hear about, you know, Lynn had died, and they had been together, and it was just such a heartbreaking story, and at the beginning of this episode, it's, you know, months later from when she died, it's in December, and, and Marin is sort of reflecting on grief and the different phases of grief, and how intense it's been and how he just misses her and I can't really talk about it more because then I will fully cry but the reason he brings up Lynn other than just to sort of check in in his intro much like I'm doing right now before the interview is because Andrew Bird scored one of Lynn's films and they were friends and Marin talks about the experience of having to send an email to people letting them know, letting them know what happened. And he didn't really know how close some of these people were to her, but he wanted to let them know. And Andrew Bird was one of those people. And so they speak about Lynn and they speak about so much more in in this episode. I sound like I'm teeing up that episode, but I'm not. I'm teeing up a conversation that's perhaps not as good, but it is one that I had with, with Andrew Bird. And, you know, I will say... There are some anecdotes in my episode that Bird also talks about in the episode with Marin. Anyway, the whole reason I bring up this conversation between Marin and Andrew Bird is because he was on it to promote his album Hark, which is why I ended up listening to it that day while I was hosting Christmas here. But also because he said something in it. He says a lot of things in it that stuck with me, but he talks about how extreme states of mind do tend to get you somewhere, whether it's extreme fatigue or emotional stress even, or, you know, what he did, which he talks about in the episode with me as well. You know, he put himself into like a self-made deprivation chamber where he went away for months without his record collection, without any people that he knew. He lived in a barn and that's when he was really able to figure out what his sound was and make music 
that feels like the inside of his brain. And when he spoke about that period of his life and how there's this discomfort that he still experiences a version of that where now he'll be at the beginning of a new creative cycle and, you know, in his case, an album, and he's really wrestling with a song or something about the project. And when he gets stuck, he goes into his own version of that. So it's not a full deprivation chamber. Years have passed now and he has a family and, and he, he, his life is different, but he says that he has to do his own version of that, which becomes, you know, his own hibernation or, or molting. And, and he says, you know, animals shed their skin or their fur and every season he too emotionally and physically molts and he goes into this low grade fever and he says it's unpleasant and he comes out of it eventually like a newborn and he's full of energy and clarity and he has to go through that very unpleasant really physiological experience and he talks about how everyone around him thinks he's depressed and and I remember hearing that and just thinking like, oh my God, that's what I need. I just need to molt. I just need to go away. I need to get out of here. You know, I just have been too distracted. I have all these friends. <laughs> like I just, I couldn't in my physical environment get my creative work done here. I just had to leave. And I remember just thinking about that word so often after I I heard him talk about it, after I remember where I was when I listened to that episode and that word just kept coming up again and again and cut to three years later, this year, 2023, I do this apartment swap, right? A couple months ago, I go to Canada, I go to Montreal where I know no one. I really thought that this was going to be it. You know, I really thought in Montreal, I was going to figure out what was up with me. I was going to figure out why I had felt frozen and stagnant for the last several years and I was going to molt and come out like a newborn with all that energy and clarity that that bird talked about. And listen, <laughs> it that's not the way the cookie crumbled, you know? I was in this city where I was a stranger to everyone and yet I still, despite removing social distractions, I found a way to still feel like Julie Depley that in that quote from one of the before movies, the one I quote all the time, I'm sick of quoting it. There, she says, there are so many things I want to do. I end up doing not much. That unfortunately is my perpetual state. <laughs> Maybe it's me. And I just want to learn how to exist within the chaos of both having panic levels of computer work and having plans with people on the same day. Having deadlines, having dishes, having parties, having writing time. And Andrew Bird is someone who does those things really well. He's figured out a way to integrate writing into his life. And you'll hear him talk about his process and how he finds it pretty easy to find time to write. He, I, I keep trying to be like, 
isn't it hard? And he's like, no, it's really not. And I'm like, isn't it hard to hold on to ideas? And he's like, no, it's not. Find time to write? No, he's he's all set. He's really good. And 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 so I realized, you know, maybe I'm addicted to the struggle and sort of the Sisyphus way. And then I was like, I mean, this is just writing itself because Bird, you know, has this song called Sisyphus. And I we actually talk about it a little bit in, in this episode because... Again, this was recorded in 2019, which was right around the time that his album called My Finest Work Yet came out. And that's where that song is, of course, a track on it. And, you know, I just am thinking so much about like, okay, am I really trying to push this rock up the up the hill? And there's this part in Albert Camus' essay, The Myth of Sisyphus, where he talks about letting the rock go and accepting the absurdity of the reoccurring situation. It shows your power. And, you know, of course, there's consequences to that. There's this interview with Dave Eggers and Andrew Bird, where Andrew Bird says, you know, he's the happiest when he's struggling up a literal or figurative hill and and sometimes he stops and says like what is the collateral damage here of abandoning this eternal task maybe the rock could roll down and and hurt somebody and I'm still wrestling with this too like why is it that I can't just let it go let it roll and just be really present where I am and not constantly feel like I have homework hanging over my head. And if there's a time of year to not feel like you have homework hanging over your head, it's it's the holidays. <laughs> Tis the season. So there's no cure for this. But if I could offer you one prescription, it would be to choose quickly whether you're pushing or you're letting it roll. Because I think half doing both is a limbo state that is deeply uncomfortable and unproductive in either direction. So if you succeed in doing this, tell me how, but it's something I've been working on. And, you know, I I thought that I could isolate the two. I made this rule right before I went to Canada where I said yes to every invite for the entire week before I left. And it was great. I didn't have to make any choices between like, oh, should I go or I should probably work. I was like, it was always hang. Should I do my chores or should I hang? I should always hang out with that person. Should I get some sleep? It was like, no. And I was like, I'll fix it in post. I'll get to Montreal. I'll catch up on everything in my, you know, looming hermitage. And it was like a binge and restrict, like dieting. You know, it didn't work. <laughs> uh, I was just overwhelmingly behind. And and when I got there, and I, I didn't regret squeezing in all the time with friends that I did, but... I was tired and and it took me a while to get back to baseline and then it's almost time to come back and so so anyway you know I I I realized that my thinking was a bit delusional to think that I could temporarily isolate work and life but that they're intertwined and I tried to separate them and it didn't really make me all that much more productive. It didn't make me more happy. I think that it's more about just realizing that maybe there are times to hermit and cocoon molt, but the majority of life for me 
needs to be spent if we're going to go with the cocoon analogy. <laughs> I need to be out of it. Dare I say butterfly. <laughs> Social freaking butterfly. You know, it's something I enjoy. I do need to figure out how to be able to do that and also get back to emails and, and continue to make work that I am proud of. And when I do isolate myself or if I do try to do a hermitage of sorts again, I need to have a very clear direction instead of feeling like Julie Dupley and so much I want to do, not much time. Like I need to go there with one task at hand. I hope this is some food for thought. Happy holiday season. It's the end of the year. We made it next year. Will be better or worse or the same? Who knows? But, you know, we might as well lean into this collective momentum. And I appreciate you being here. I hope this episode comforts you. Thank you so much for doing this. Like I said before we officially started, your work has been so meaningful to me and it's so nice to sit down with you. Well, thank you. It's good to be here. So I want to know what your life is like a little bit. What's like a, a typical day? I know I'm sure it's really different because you're touring and traveling and when you're, right. do you write while you're new things while you're touring? Sometimes. I used to more when I was in a van because you're driving to the next show and you're looking out the window and trying to entertain yourself. When you're in a bus, you're sleeping while you travel to the next place and right. you don't see the horizon. So it's not as inspiring, I guess. Boredom is a good, you know, instigator. In this lounge that we're in, it's all about getting off of your phone. Mm -hmm. So what is your relationship to your phone and social media and, and boredom? It's a tool. I, I try not to interface with it too much. I, like everyone else, get sucked into it. But I stay off of platforms personally, even though I have a presence there. Mm -hmm. I'll check in on them yeah, like anyone else would, like as a viewer, like... I don't have, I don't know how to get into my Instagram account. That's I'll just so check, nice. <laughs> I'll check on it to make sure that I'm being represented yeah. well, or I'll send quotes out yeah. to some, for someone to put up, but I don't personally interface with it. So yeah. I think that's good. I also check on it. They're doing a great job. It feels very you. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Good. I mean, it is, it is. Yeah. I just, I don't. Um, that's really know. healthy. Yeah. And probably healthy creatively. Yeah. I mean, I don't seem to, f I don't feel like I don't, I have much competing for my time for writing. I don't have any frustrations there. Like, I feel like I've, life is long. Yeah. <laughs> There's enough. I'm lucky. I feel like I have hours in the day to work on ideas, but I work, you know, I'll, I'll be working on ideas as I'm like waiting for a plane or cause I can just kind of take a, a file out in my head and tinker with it. Wow. Play it. I have a pretty strong playback. <laughs> mode in my brain mm -hmm. so I can listen to something I'm working on and say, maybe I should try this and I yeah. can try that in my head without an instrument. Oh, that's so interesting. So you, so if you're waiting for a plane or something and you hear something or think of an idea, do you write it in your phone and record it and try to catch that or it'll, that, it'll yeah, file it away when you I do it? minimal, when I really have to write something down, I will, or voice memo. I do use voice memo uh -huh. quite a bit, but before that, I would just use that as I'm my own test subject for mm -hmm. ideas. So if an idea comes back, then it, it means it's a strong idea. I go to this meditation at the Rubin Museum every week and somebody asked that question of like, 
when you get ideas all the time while you're meditating, should you keep a journal by you and write them down or what should you do? And the Sharon Salzberg was teaching and she said, if it's a good idea, it will come back. And yeah. Yeah. I mean, if the conditions are right, you know, is sometimes it can be a, some sensory thing that can, that can trigger it. Like a, I know every time I get into a cab in New York city, I would hear the same melody, Yeah. but it would go away for months. And every time I get back into that, something about that air freshener. That's so. Yeah. So there's little things like that. And you just don't know when, what's going to trigger it sometimes. Yeah. I've had that with feelings of, you know, coming back to a place you haven't been for a while and it makes you feel a certain way. It's the mm -hmm. same every time. Yeah. It's really interesting about creativity that I think so many people, I can feel like I have to have the conditions perfect to be able to write or I have to. You know, kind of this, like doing this podcast right now, this isn't the traditional way I usually record with someone with like tons of people around, but ultimately you can have a real vulnerable conversation here or, you know, in a studio or, you know, you can think of a song in the back of a cab as easily. Do you, going back to my original question with a typical day, do you mm -hmm. have writing sessions and time when you devote to work in that way? No, I really don't. I don't have office hours. It's, for better or worse, I, if I find myself with an open expanse of time, I'll then think about how I want to spend that. And sometimes it's on my bike. Sometimes it's, the writing of songs is pretty involuntary thing. Yeah. So it'll happen whether I'm ready for it or not, you know, yeah. and it happens in the middle of the night or, you know. Have you ever felt like one has come to you and you haven't been able to catch it and that's been disappointing no <laughs> you're always yeah. wow i mean if it's meant to be some things are i just can't ignore them you know what i mean it's it's some things become so some ideas and lyrical ideas become so strong that i have to pay attention and i have to address it and sit down and, yeah and that's i spend hours and hours sitting on the couch with a guitar or with the violin like chipping away at ideas. I'm not saying I'm just going about my day. Totally. But it's true. Like when I, the real breakthroughs come when you're doing the dishes. Yeah. Something that gets you out of your head and doing, yeah, mm -hmm. something monotonous. So we always talk about daily routines. Do you have a few things, like the first three things you do when you wake up in the morning and the last few things you do in the evening? Yeah. I make an espresso and I, take my son to school and sometimes I do Pilates oh, or nice. I go on a bike ride. You know, I live in LA and I live right near a park where I can, I like to go uphill mm -hmm. in it. I always lived in the Midwest and I said, someday I'm going to live next to a mountain and I'm going to climb that mountain yeah. every day and I'm going to be happy about that. It's so funny, maybe because I'm from the Midwest, even when I got off the plane here, seeing the mountains is still strikes me as mm. something that feels so new to me, I guess. Mm -hmm. Even though I've seen them before, it's just, there's something really, yeah, maybe being Midwestern, it's more majestic to me in some way. Yeah. I've had it less of my life. Yeah. I mean, if I really could choose my environment, I would live in a mountain town. Yeah. Yeah. What about in the evening? What are some of the last few things you do to wind down at the end of the day? I read pretty consistently. Sometimes I'll watch a program, but I, nighttime becomes, is kind of a perilous time for me, you know? Mm -hmm. That's when your defenses are down and you can kind of spiral a little bit. Yeah, totally. And, uh, Witching hour. 
Yeah. So I, t- I become, as I get older, like I really concentrate on easing into the sleeping mode and usually reading's the best move. Yeah. What's been on your mind lately? What are you curious about right now? What's on my mind lately? Jeez. I have to think about that for a second. Yeah. Let's come back time. to that. Okay. We talked a little bit about your childhood. Can you talk about what you were like as a kid? Did you always know you wanted to, to be a musician? Do you remember what you wanted to be when you grew up? No, I didn't always want to be a musician. I, I played, I studied violin from age of four and I went every week and I was relatively good at it, but I didn't have a concept of being a professional musician at that time. It was just something I did. The first thing I thought I wanted to be was a psychiatrist. Mm. Well, my mom is an artist and she got a degree in art therapy. So she got a psychology degree. But I don't know if that has much to do with it or it's just that I, I I just remember seeing the mahogany paneled office of like Freud and the chairs. And I just like... Very cozy. I like the atmosphere of that. I like the kind of dark, cozy atmosphere. And I I guess I'm interested in human behavior and but I don't know if that was motivation at the time. Mm -hmm. And I didn't get serious about music until I was maybe 15, 16, right when things are really getting rough, you know, in teenage years and nothing was going particularly well socially or in school or anything. And I was like, well, I can already play pretty decently well. Maybe I should throw myself into this you know, fully. And then it became this great passion, you know, like this, I was going to become the, the best violinist, you know? And I I went at it really, I have a tendency to like, not be methodical, but throw myself into something fully. And I didn't really practice so much as I just play like eight hours a day, just obsessively. And I'm still kind of like that. I, I, I get into something and I am completely consumed by it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And then the songwriting thing came along like when the vi- I was so, I was having a lot of physical problems early when I was trying to make a living as a violinist. I had tendonitis and it, I was just in a lot of pain. And I went to see this, um, I was seeing this massage therapist and then her mother, who was this kind of shamanic kind of presence and, she just kind of came up to me and put her hand on my shoulder and says, you're too focused. Mm. She didn't know much about me, really. She just kind of picked up on it. Yeah. And uh, I was like, oh, yeah, you're right. I mean, maybe it's not healthy to, to practice eight to 10 hours a day. Yeah. You know, I used to do, I used to, read and write poetry. I used to um, have other interests. Yeah. And that was more balanced. And then I got involved in this great obsessive passion, you know, and it was killing me. Yeah. So what did you do after that? Did you pivot into? Well, that's when I, you know, started thinking about the whole, not just like am I going to be a practitioner of the violin in different styles, which I was becoming, or am I going to become, do I have more to offer as a songwriter? When you're dealing with songs, it's like a, it's, it's in the similar kind of medium as making a movie or writing a novel or something. You're thinking about 
a visual thing. You're thinking about the artwork, the narrative, the mm-hmm. the ideas, the you know, not just the playing of it. Playing is just uh, one aspect of it, and that that is, was became an obsession of its own. But it wasn't so focused on doing this, which was causing me problems. Yeah, you know? and then yeah, that's when I started my first band, and then that escalated over like twelve years of just touring like crazy and then in my mid-30s it kind of happened again i was finally getting success people were finally coming to shows after so long and i didn't want to let it slip away so i was playing like 200 shows a year i was like just sick all the time yeah. i looked terrible it was like emaciated and i had become so single single-minded about this one thing and then i had to do the same thing kind of break it apart yeah. and but you'd done it once with violin. So then how did you, how did you pivot that second time? What woke you up to like, did you have another moment similar to the massage therapist putting her hand on you that? I think it's mostly I starting a family, having a, some, cause I was, I was gone so much that I didn't know what was a normal reality really anymore. Like every time I'd come home, I'd feel kind of alienated yeah. um, from tour. And I was really gone more than I was home. So um, really trying to have some kind of grounding and having something just beyond me in my creative obsession. Was having your son, how did that change things for you creatively? Did it give you that grounding that you were craving? Yeah, it took a couple of years to like, to really settle, settle, you Mm -hmm. know, I was still had that urge, you know, for so many years, I, I, I really looked forward to driving out of Chicago on tour and being on the skyway and leaving was just like, ah, I'm out. I'm doing it. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And it took a while for, for everything to kind of shift back to like having a home base and, Mm -hmm. and having a family. And yeah, it really just forced me to, to do that. What's your greatest lesson on parenting? How old is your son? He's eight now. I think I heard you say he's playing the violin? Playing the guitar. Playing the guitar. Yeah. And he's loving it. And he whistles. That's what I heard. Yeah. It's, he whistles your song sometimes, we right? Just, my wife and I just roll our eyes like, oh, come on. Like, <laughs> he's really good at it. But uh, the biggest lesson on parenting that I learned about parenting? Yeah. Just what, what having him has taught you. Well, what I tell other people who are about to have kids is like, you are in control. They're living in your universe. I think some parents think that they're not the creators of their child's world, but for the first eight years, you kind of are. Yeah. And so they kind of have this hands off, like, I don't know. I mean, uh, Disney and, you know, and screens. Yeah. Screens. And, and what can you do? It just, you know, and I'm like, that's just, I know it's hard, but you know, Try not to take that route. Like we definitely avoided screens and he had, uh, we're having problems with a lot of the friends that are doing screens and their, their values are totally different than his. Yeah. It's not in a good way. <laughs> yeah. It's an, it's an interesting, it's an interesting world that we live in with the access to things that, you know, I remember a time where we, didn't have it and being in a generation that remembers that but now we do and it's so connected to it and and then when it becomes part of your work it's it's complicated and yeah 
we don't know what it's all doing to our brains. It's a big social experiment. Yeah, totally. You mentioned whistling and your son whistling. How did that become part of your work? Well, I didn't think to do it at first mm -hmm. because um, whistling is such a, such a casual thing. I just do it all the time. Yeah. And I thought... Me too. It would, do you? <laughs> yeah. And I'd been... I'd suffered for to learn this difficult instrument. And uh, I thought whistling is too whimsical in the context of like a, yeah. a rock and roll song. I guess you, you, <laughs> you don't want to be... I don't know. This was early on. I, I just didn't occur to me to whistle in a song until... Just for the, sometimes my hands are occupied, so I need to carry a melody somehow. And I would just whistle it. And I was like, that sounds actually pretty good. And then I'd try to replace it with something else and nothing sounded as good as the whistle. It really grabs people's attention when I'm playing solo too. But for years when I would, you know, people didn't know who I was, I would just fill my lungs and hold a note at the top of the set until people stopped talking and listened. But I think there's something about it being so casual that it it's completely honest. I mean, it's, it's like singing is coming out of your body, you know? Yeah. It's vulnerable in that way. Mm -hmm. I think other, an instrument is a little bit away from you. Speaking of whistling, your song Sisyphus, could you tell that story and how you decided to put that into a song? Yeah. I was, as it often happens, it's like there's something... Like I was saying, there's something that's I keep sticking in your head. And I was thinking about, first I was thinking about the idea of a precipice or like a threshold. Mm -hmm. That's, that was something that was dominating my thoughts because I would notice my son would, every time he'd leave, get out of the car, he would pause right as he's stepping out of the car and like take forever to just like cross into this other realm. Or when he's coming into the house, he would linger in the doorway before he enters that other room. And I, I was thinking like, if there's something to that and i was thinking about making like a massive shift or change or leaping into the void mm -hmm. so i was imagining being up the top of a volcano and deciding whether to go back down or to leap into this void and then seeing precipice uh, sisyphus rhymes with precipice so i was started thinking about this greek king that tried to cheat death and gets sentenced to a lifetime of uh, eternity of pushing a rock up a hill only to see it roll back down so it becomes this parable for futility and and not feeling like your your struggle is serving you anymore you know that's kind of the best way to describe it is that i've got struggle in my blood like i like adversity yeah i mean i don't like it but i kind yeah. of trigger something in me that i just feel like i need and mm -hmm. i start to question that at a certain point like Am I just fabricating difficult situations? I, ha I have for years. Like, um, always doing things the hardest way possible. And then you're told in the Midwest that that that's builds character and everything mm -hmm. growing up. But it's like, come on. Like, it's, it's a little out of balance. So, but then, you know, then that led to this, this idea of like, also your connection to the community and pushing that rock up the hill, but deciding to abandon it and abandon this futile task. But what happens when that rock rolls back down and is it going to, you know, take out some, the village. So it's just, you know, ideas, it started with one simple thought of that threshold precipice and it becomes, this, just grows and grows until it's a song. Mm -hmm. 
It's so cool. It kind of reminds me of what you were saying about that addiction to the struggle or that tendency towards the struggle it speaks to what you were talking about before about, you know, your intense focus on the violin and then pivoting from that and intense focus on touring and constantly yeah. evolving. Yeah. I love the album cover of your finest work yet. Can you talk about that a bit? Mm -hmm. Well, I decided at some point after going through a hundred different titles for the record, it, it becomes absurd after like 14 records to, to name it again. It's like, this all sounds so pretentious. And then I had a working title just said my finest work yet, you know, as a joke, inside joke. And then I kind of said, came back to that and was like, Oh, how about that? It's bold, but we'll see how it goes. And then I had to find an image that struck the right tone with that. It's difficult to work from the words towards image, usually it's the other way around. Mm -hmm. And then I stumbled upon that painting, which I was aware of, but I, I see it as like the, the suffering poet penning his final words, this uber drama, you know, that kind of myth of the, the, the suffering poet. And I thought that kind of, the image kind of made the title appropriately funny. And then I thought about putting myself in the place of the poet Marat, yeah. who it, it was actually assassinated as, as it turns out, but, um, and he's in a bathtub full of blood, but we, we didn't go as far as putting blood in there, but we recreated the painting, every detail. It's so cool. Yeah, it was fun. I, I love it. I think it's, I think it's great. Can you talk about Bloodless? Speaking of blood and, and the bath, I know that's another historic reference. Yeah. That was written between the 2016 election and the Charlottesville incident. And I was thinking about how things could spin out of control um, if we don't take some action, take some, be vigilant because all the ingredients are there for things to eventually, for now, they're relatively, there's not full scale civil war going on, but things are starting to foment in a way that's, it's not healthy at all. And I, it's getting worse. So it's a cautionary tale. And I reference things like the Spanish civil war for one, because if you read about that period of time, um, what happened with the left as the resistance to fascism, the, the sort of populism that eventually defeated the left, there's all sorts of things we need to take note of mm -hmm. so that we can remain united against those. These things happen every 60 to 100 years, you know, the, these sort of populist sort of movements and you can stop it, you know, mm -hmm. but if there's infighting in the left, like there was in that case, yeah. like everyone with their own I ideologies, the left was so fractured and reading about George Orwell going down there to fight the fascists, he ends up almost getting executed because he was the wrong kind of, with the wrong kind of communist yeah. group, you know, but it's also talking about, you know, there's a, a lot of historical human tendencies that have been around for ages, but what's causing it to be so dangerous is the social media and how it's profiting mm -hmm. from the divisiveness. And then the overall theme of the record is like, what is that void within us 
that is filled, that is satisfied by the hatred for another, yeah, the other side or whatever. Yeah. I don't have a, a solution exactly, but I, I am optimistic and I'm idealistic that whole swaths of the populace are not lost to us like we might think they are mm-hmm. because they voted for someone that they can be swayed by reason. I think there's just very loud extreme groups getting pushed to the front of the queue in our, in our news feeds, which again, the, the algorithm is just, is maybe there's not even a human behind it, but it's, it's, it's a profitable algorithm. Yeah. And it's kind of got a mind of its own. So I think if we can get a, a handle on, I think really our, our, our news feeds are a big problem. Mm-hmm. And I, I have to say I'm stuck on mine. I, I'm not saying I'm above it. It's just, I think as a songwriter though, there's an opportunity to reframe things. That's why I'm a little apprehensive about being here because I don't want to find myself in a situation of being a pundit. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm still working in a, a different medium that has an opportunity to speak up about things in different ways and maybe change, not change the minds, but, you know, yeah. pull people together. And I think the three and a half, four minute song is a good way to bring up some things we need to talk about. Yeah. Well, I think your work is first and foremost, a really great entertainment piece and a song. And it's just a, you know, a Trojan horse for a message or for a story or, mm-hmm. but ultimately a really lovely, catchy music and the art i think i think when you're the art leads i think and mm. you do that so well i think what you take from it is second i don't know is that how yeah. you no you feel said it? that very very well the art mm. the art leads that's what i've yeah. been trying to to say because there's been a lot of talk about artists musicians need have a duty mm-hmm. and no we don't really totally <laughs> yeah we we don't but if you're paying attention and you're awake and you're listening and and reacting to your environment, then it'll come out mm-hmm. naturally. Yeah. If you're thinking about working for the weekend and partying and girls, then that you might write about that. Yeah. But otherwise, you know, if you're and it might evolve. Yeah. You seem like a really calm, centered guy, and I'm wondering have you have you always been that way? Outwardly, yes. <laughs> oh, I have. I have like insomnia i have really i have anxiety i've got all our modern yeah bummers. all the things man what what helps you with those things i don't know if i have the temperament for meditation i have to say it's like i i don't have the temperament for being a fisherman either it's like trying to do it makes me even more anxious totally yeah how do i do it uh i just change try to change my environment mm. as simple as just walking out the door, walking up, up a hill, back down, just like resets anything that can give you perspective. When something goes wrong or like with a, with a show or with, you know, it's funny, like you walked in here, I've done eight of these interviews today and I feel so bad because I was so excited to interview you. And I feel like hopefully I hit it as well as you hide your, your internal Mm -hmm. stuff. But I was like, Oh man, the batteries are dead and the papers and Stuff that doesn't matter in the scheme of right. things. You know, hopefully I remember this part of this more than that. What do you do if you have something like that happen that, that helps you to come back to yourself or when you're feeling bad, how do you pivot? 
I don't know. I've on stage, I've learned to make that almost look forward to those moments because the worst has happened. And now yeah. there's a opportunity for a human moment yeah. that makes something real happen that makes that moment stand out from the next night. So I'm not saying that you don't, you don't want to go as far as like orchestrating mistakes or disasters, but I think that's kind of why I do so much crazy looping stuff on stage and that has a lot of opportunity for human error, which will inevitably happen is that when it does happen, it's like, folks, I don't, I don't yeah. know what to tell you. <laughs> you know, someone who sees the live, that's live theater and live mm -hmm. music is seeing that it's, you can watch a video at home and you can listen, but mm -hmm. to see humanity, I think is why people are there. Yeah. I mean, that's, I'm, very old fashioned about what I make records and the way I perform on stage, no in-ears, no, nothing that I feel detaches me from the, the situation or the, the room or the environment. Do you ever make eye contact with the people that you're performing in front of when you're singing? That's funny. That can be unnerving. <laughs> yeah. But at the same time, I, I do feel like I'm communicating with the whole as like, as if it's one personality. Mm -hmm. But when I see make eye contact with one person in the crowd, which I do at some point during the show, like I feel like I have to just to remind me where I am and what's happening. Mm -hmm. Like I have a song where I even, it gets kind of meta because I'm explaining in the song, what if I became that kind of performer that's like pointing, like being like the rock god, like, you know, high fives in the front row, which I'm totally not. But what if one day I just, tonight <laughs> I'm going to do it. It's like the first night you decide to stage dive or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Tonight? Right. <laughs> I got to read the room first. But <laughs> it's like, is that possible to like change your persona? I've, I've decided to just take my normal instincts and maybe amplify them a little bit mm -hmm. on stage, but otherwise work with my normal nature on yeah. stage. I feel like that's the lesson I've been constantly trying to learn in my 20s is just leaning into, we talk a lot about body image on this show. I always ask people, you know, how do you feel comfortable in the body that you're in? And it's kind of what you're talking about is like, this is what I've got to work with this time around. Can't really change it that much. Let's lean into it, yeah. you know, you know, being a public person and performing. Have you ever felt uncomfortable in yourself and what's helped with that? Yeah, I mean, there was a time in Chicago when usually people are cool, but there's a time in like 2008, 2009 when I would come back to what's supposed to be my hometown and I felt like people would be yelling at my back when I was on the other side of the street or just trying to get a reaction out of me. Like mm -hmm. in restaurants, like waiters, like, going, you know, just to see if they can get me to turn around. And it was very alienating and yeah. strange and um i was like why are people not being cool like they yeah. always usually they are yeah. and i had to get out of that environment it was like i just felt like there was a target on the back of my head yeah it sounds jarring and terrible <laughs> yeah i don't i don't I d like i said i don't really have a an alter ego or a persona mm -hmm. so what you see is what you get on stage and yeah off i do feel very comfortable on stage but i always this might speak to what you're talking about. Every time I walk on stage, as I'm walking out there, I don't think, I got this. I'm always like, how is this going to work? How can I possibly pull this off? 
Wow. Every single time. And then my, what's I've just developed, to, it works for me as kind of a shrug of the shoulders. I don't know, here folks. Here we go. Here we go. You're down there. I'm up here. Isn't this a funny situation we find ourselves in? And that seems to help me a lot. I think that's that's why we love you and your music is because of that. Because we, I don't know, it feels personal and... And I think that's what we're all craving, you know, is mm-hmm. is feeling like we're connected to something. And I think, you know, when you when you have a persona and you have, we're all wearing masks, you know, in some way in the mm-hmm. world. But to to take those off and do something, and that honestly, it probably feels better for you to have people connect with your work because it's you and so personal. I feel like, you know, someone who their work is further from them probably the criticism doesn't feel as close but also the praise doesn't feel as close you know what i mean yeah i think to bring things full circle to um what we started talking about as far as what was i going to say this is all going to work out perfectly is that um oh shit Oh, I was me too. God, I've been so inarticulate this yeah. this whole time. Maybe you'll think of it. I'll think of it. Um, so the violin. The, we've been we've been all over. Yeah, it was something about that moment of walking on stage. Oh, um, humility of not feeling like. Oh, your body. Oh, great. The whole tendonitis thing. The yeah, yeah, yeah. Being too focused. I think you just need to. One thing I've learned is you're listening for those signals that you're something isn't quite right. You know, mm. something's out of balance. Yeah. Usually your body will step in and say, in, if you're in a situation where you don't feel like you're being valued, for instance, like the real trigger w- was I was working at a Renaissance fair playing for drunk, like D and D enthusiasts <laughs> and bikers waiting in line to use the bathroom. And I was playing for tips for a bathroom line. And that's when my arm just stopped working. It just said, no, you're better than this. <laughs> yeah. This is not a valuable situation. It was, I'm glad I did it. I'm glad I found that, that limit. And then it, there's other things. Like, for instance, one, one time I wrote a song for a movie. And it wasn't something I would write of my own accord. I wrote it for the film. I kind of admit I dumbed it down for the film. And it ended up not getting in the movie. So I said, well, I spent a lot of time on this song. I'm going to play it at this show and see how it feels. And as soon as I started the song, I broke into a cold sweat and I was like, couldn't wait for it to be over. Like, so there's always these physical, strong physical reactions to not being yourself. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, I mean, that's every time I've been, if I'm afraid to put something out in the world, if it really feels honest and feels like, me, you kind of don't care about the reaction because not that things, you know, still might not be comfortable all the time, but you're, you at least know it's stakes are a lot lower because you know that it was you and this, and, you know, I think we all want to be seen and loved for who we really are. And yeah, I don't know. It's easier to get, get that love when you're putting something that's really you. But that's a hard thing to premeditate, Mm -hmm. you know? Oh, people love it when I'm myself. So what do I do about that? Yeah, the yeah, thing yeah. is you can't do anything about that. Yeah. Or very little. Yeah. You, you've spoken before too about how you learned all these rules with 
with violin technically, but then you also in your in your work really like leaned into your who you are. And mm-hmm. I think that's kind of what we're speaking about now. But I don't know, can you can you talk about that? And especially in your early early career. Yeah, leaning into my weirdoness. Yeah. I think you said that on Sam Jones podcast. Oh, did I? You're great. Oh, I was, that, yeah. It's I think some people their offstage persona is eccentric and unstable and then they get on stage and what I hear coming out their actual songwriting and, and their ideas is actually quite mainstream and milk toast. Mm-hmm. And I feel like the place for your more eccentric impulses should be totally your, the thing you're putting out there. I feel like people repress their, their odd oddness for at least in the musical, in a musical context. I don't know. I don't know if I lean into it or it does my offstage persona does not, I don't think makes people think I'm super eccentric. But when I sit down to write a song, I, th- I think I'm attracted to more of the dark corners of the world of ideas. Mm-hmm. You know, When you were, you mentioned starting out and really schlepping and like people, those early years and, you know, you've mentioned some of the things, some of the aspects of that now. What, kept you going like when things were hard did you have a did you imagine you know your finest work yet and putting out where you would be in your life right now did you have a certain goal in mind was there a moment where you were like okay this is I feel like I've made it is it always a moving target Mm, I'm afraid it is kind of always a moving target but um I I used to have an attitude when the early days when I was in a van broke with a band that was grumpy because I couldn't, could barely pay them. And we were playing dive bars. We did this for 10 years. It wasn't really taking off. It was maybe 50 to 100 people a night. And every time I'd pull into a town, I would, I would think, why would anyone cut me a check to, to do what I want to do? I didn't have any sense of entitlement whatsoever. There was no sense of like, I deserve this. I knew I would get upset when I saw bands I didn't think were very good get really successful. You know, that's human nature, you, the envy and everything. But, but when it came to my thing, I was, I, I never had this kind of, you just believe it, it'll happen, you know? It won't. It not, won't there's no yeah. guarantees anything is going to happen. So much is luck and timing and privilege. Yeah. So I was like, I, I kept coming back to that. No one's going to cut you a check to do what you want to do. You've got to be savvy you know and maybe a little lucky or something and then people finally the turning point was when i moved out of the city and lived in a barn for a few years hardly saw anybody reinvented the way i was making music went back out there by myself having kind of reimagined how i make music and suddenly people started i was out there solo after having like a five piece band in the years before and I would come back from getting coffee for showtime and there'd be like a line at the door. I'm like, Oh man, who's playing tonight? That's competing with me. Oh. It was like, Oh, they, they're finally coming. <laughs> and then I was like, Oh shit. Well, I, I don't want to blow this, you yeah. know? So that began my, the early years of the rock band and the, in the van playing dive bars was fun 
it's kind of like a party that just never ended. Mm -hmm. And so it was not always fun, but, but once this people started coming, I started being like, okay, got to keep this going. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wow. You felt that pressure because you would, the gratefulness, I guess, of. Totally. Yeah. I never, certainly after slogging away for 12 years, I did not take that for granted. Yeah. And I've met artists and bands around the, over the years that are kind of waiting for the tour bus to pull up and I'm like, eh. yeah, you know, what would you say to young artists or you at the, did you ever think about stopping and doing something else? No, no, it didn't never occurred to me. What would you say to yourself or to an artist now at kind of a similar point with, you know, trying, trying, trying. It sounds to me like you were kind of like trying, 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 forcing, and then you kind of stopped, went to the barn, spent time with yourself and allowed, and then just sort of let it out. Yeah. It's a good time to, in your life to, and you got to know when that is, to put your record collection in storage. Or that's, it doesn't happen anymore. It's all <laughs> in a cloud, but whatever. You know, just stop listening to your favorite artists and find out what is really happening inside you. I didn't do that intentionally. It just happened by accident. But I, I just moved out into this barn and I didn't bring my records with me. And I was just doing drywall, fixing up this barn and changing my environment again caused me to hear things, a different kind of phrasing and a different kind of texture and not being, if you're an adaptable person, that can be good and bad. You know, if you're adapting to your people around you and your environment, that can lead you away from what you actually have going on. Yeah. Yeah. It's really interesting. It's spending time with yourself and boredom kind of goes back to what we were talking about with the, you know, there's so few instances where we can do that, but that's where I think a lot of insight can come. Those washing dishes moments. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So we kind of end with some quick fire questions, but some mm -hmm. of them are longer. Some of them are shorter. I'll warm you up with some easy ones. You seem really nice, and I'm assuming your wife is really nice. Our courting was pretty funny because like, just saw each other, or she claims I saw her, and she was unaware, but I don't believe that. But two nights in New York City, just randomly saw her across the room in different places. Oh my gosh. Kind of randomly. She was at a show at the Beacon Theater. Uh, I thought I you were going to say on the street, that was, but still. No. <laughs> Shocking. And then the next night, Similar conditions, similar lighting. We didn't speak. Again, you know, it was just, I just noticed. And we we're both pretty quiet people. It's, you know, there's not an, a, a super outgoing alpha in the, between us, yeah. you know? Which is rare. I feel like usually sometimes in a partnership, one person is more outgoing yeah. than the other. I was, I tended to find myself in relationships with an outgoing person. And usually that would turn out to be something to mask insecurities. Mm. And then it would not go well after that. So yeah, it was a long, it, over the course of a year, it was very slow and, and there weren't many words spoken. So after you see her twice, do you talk to her? Do you guys talk that night? It's one of you. How do you exchange what happened no, next? We were both spoken for at the time. So oh, it was wow. complicated. But once we were both open, single, <laughs> yes, uh, then, then we actually met and I tried to make conversation. And 
it was there was some orchestration going on behind the scenes yeah, yeah, yeah. to make sure we were in the same place at the same time from other people like yeah. setting you up yeah wow yes cool did that spark any lessons on romantic relationships recalling that well i i think uh i guess what i was saying about uh, if you find yourself to be a quiet person and you find yourself easily falling into situations where you're with the outgoing person mm -hmm. that maybe that isn't the right dynamic maybe it's, it's just that happens outgoing people tend to seek out people and be more brazen so then you just fall into relationships with them yeah so but we're you know we're a really good match and we wouldn't on our own accord have been proactive or we're too shy to to meet on our own accord. So is this a, a friend, a fairy godmother that orchestrated this? Friend of both yeah, of yours? Yeah, her friend. Um, yeah. Oh, that's so cool. I love that. Okay, greatest lesson on family. Before I had uh, started a family, I thought it was, I like to believe that it's all nurture versus nature. Mm -hmm. And I still like to believe we're all more or less dealt the same cards. The brain can do amazing things. And there's, as far as intelligence goes, I think it's it's more a matter of lack of self-esteem or or insecurity that, that causes you not to reach your full potential. So, but since having a kid, I mean, I realize it's a, it is a bit of both, you know, because I mean, my son is just such a was always such a sweet kid, and I think we create a nice environment for him and everything. But mm -hmm. it's kind of uncanny how what a nice kid he is, you know. Uh, and I think we can't be, we can't claim responsibility for that hundred yeah. percent. Greatest lesson on spirituality, God, what do you think happens when we die? Oh, geez. Just a little question to end on. <laughs> yeah, sure. I don't like what I consider to be kind of fuzzy thinking about some things. I'm, I'm like pretty, I think you make the most of what you have while you're here. And I think the afterlife was invented for when people were dealing with great deal of suffering and adversity so it helped and it was good and i also don't believe that things happen for a reason so i'm a bit i'm a little like cold on those subjects yeah yeah that's interesting it's it makes sense that we needed it more back yeah. then it makes sense on why that was developed right okay so we like i said this is a this podcast is called let it out and we talk about letting out soft stories which are the you know, vulnerable, tender stories that I believe, you know, your music tells and connect us and binds us and makes us feel less alone. So as someone told you something vulnerable or, or tender that's made you feel less alone or helped you that, that you can think of, you don't have to share their secret necessarily, but, you know, a moment that sparked um, something for you. I don't know. I, when I was younger, I expected a lot more from people that were older than me. And then it took a while to realize that people that would be twice my age would be twice as insecure and, yeah. and, and struggling with so many demons. You're not supposed to, you're, you're an elder. You're an you're adult. To, yeah. yeah. And in retrospect, you know, I, everyone's struggling, the bullies, everyone. And that's something you realize as you get older. Yeah. I had a moment in a restaurant recently where I realized that everyone there was my age or younger. And I was like, mm -hmm. oh my God, this whole, there's no adults here. Like mm -hmm. it's a, it's an interesting moment to to have and be like we're all figuring it out and nobody really knows what we're doing right 
no matter what age you are. Okay, so last thing before you go, can you recommend books, music, podcast, food, TV shows, anything you want to recommend to people that you're um, liking? They can be all-time favorites or current things that you're enjoying. Let's see. Books. I'm just starting to read The Adventures of Augie March again by Saul Bellow, which is one of my favorite books. And I just started reading Dickens, which I never really read when I was younger. And I'm enjoying that. I like both those books. Uh, not Dickens, but Dickens. I just read Great Expectations. And I love reading that kind of book because there's ways of manners of speaking that are really colorful, that are lost. And the cadence of it and the musicality of it, the of like kind of street language from a different time or different place. Yeah. That's what I really enjoy in books. I don't, I discovered I really don't like historical fiction because it's either history, it's dry, this is what happened, and there's fiction. <laughs> and the mingling of the two is, I find, really disturbing. So I just stopped reading this David Mitchell book about imperial, the Dutch in Japan in, in 1790s. It was good. It was super well written, but just knowing that it was a made-up story about an actual historical time. It's like either you got made up, you know, I once had a friend that he was an engineer, so it makes sense, but he was like, fiction, I don't, I don't get it. They're just made up stories. He'd rather read a book about how to do something and then you close the book and now you know how to do it. Some people are like that. I, but where it's like that specific genre of historical fiction, like, oh, this is a made up story about something that happened during the Revolutionary War. That bothers me for some reason. TV were, I just watched the last movie of Deadwood, which was interesting because I remember 2008, whenever that was on watching Deadwood, then it stopped abruptly. It was good. I wish there was more. I wish it was more episodic, like, you know, Killing Eve is great. I've just watched some of Fargo, which is, I appreciate the his historical context that he does in that. So that's okay. <laughs> TV, it's okay. But <laughs> to have a made up story. That, that brings in history, but yeah. What about music? Any other music that you want to recommend or, or like? I'm mostly just into my jazz record. Every time I go into a record store, I, I go to the Y section of the jazz LPs and I get another Lester Young record. And there's seems to be an endless supply of, I think his catalog is pretty finite, but there's always different repackaging of it. And that's that's my collector's bug thing. I just have to have every Lester Young record that was ever put out. But current artists, I don't know. That's okay. There's some good ones. So just, I'm not thinking of it right now. Okay, speaking of things that we we're going to maybe come back to, did you happen to think of something that you're curious about right now? Or what's been, what's been on your mind lately? I've been thinking about how to talk about things tonight. And that line between, does it take a populist approach to fight a populist movement mm. you know what i mean do you have to simplify your message because i'm not a very simple person but what do i say when i get on stage i'm going to just if i were to be completely honest like we we're talking about i'd explain a very complex picture right is that helping us um rally right you know is this a rally tonight what is this i don't even know so that I just kind of take the out is that I'm a songwriter, you know? Yeah. 
and then I'll talk between songs about what it's about, and then the rest is it's for yeah. you. That's what I like about this medium podcasting is it allows you to tell long stories and not have to, you can let things meander. And I think that's a welcomed phenomenon. Yeah. Do you listen to podcasts? I do when I'm going to be on one. <laughs> I listen to it to see what it's all about. Yeah. But it's not in my daily Ears. diet. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Well, thank you so much for doing this one. It was sure. a delight to talk to you. Yeah. And like I said, your work is meaningful to me. And this was really cool. Yeah. Great talking to you. So, mm -hmm. Okay. Ready? Inhale. Sigh. Let it out. <sighs> cool. Thank you so much. Okay. That was my conversation with Andrew Bird, the one and only from 2019. A time capsule. A moment in time. You can go back and listen to the episode in its entirety. I kept a little bit of the intro outro I I think I was in Paris or Berlin and I maybe talk about that and it, it's funny it wasn't even that long ago or it doesn't seem like it was that long ago 2019 I keep thinking like oh it's just last year but it's been three years so um it's been four <laughs> almost five shit yeah it was a long time ago Anyway, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for listening. This podcast is produced by Brianna Bain. We'll be back next week. Bree's coming back on the show very soon for our annual Q&A. She did it last year, so we will um, put a link to that one in the show notes so you can give that a listen. If you want to read the Substack, if you want to read the newsletter, Let It Out lists, links in the show notes. You know where to find me on the internet. And... I used to do this thing where I would tell you an emoji to comment on Instagram to let me know you're listened all the way to the end. Maybe I'll go back to doing that. But in the meantime, let me know an episode with a person. Just comment their name and let me know you liked it. And maybe I'll I'll re-air. I'll put myself through this again to uh, re-air an episode from the past and put it here yet again. I, what, everything I told you, all that that long silly preamble about space and blah 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 that is at the beginning that was pretty much a verbatim plagiarized from something i wrote uh in the substack so you can read the, the full version of that if you'd like to well, i'm not sure why you would but if you would in the, in the show notes too thank you again so much for being here oh what i was going to say about brie coming back on the show we're going to do a Q&A episode, so you send us questions that you want us to answer about anything and everything, let us know. We'll answer them if we feel like it, and if we don't, we'll answer different ones. Today's episode is brought to you in part by BetterHelp, which is a company that I love so much. I love therapy. It's been such a useful tool in my life, and what BetterHelp does is helps make therapy accessible and easy for people while they're traveling, while they're living internationally. Finding a therapist can be really challenging and BetterHelp helps to bring you to a licensed, vetted therapist very, very easily. It's not a crisis line. It's not self-help. It's a professional counseling 
network done securely online that has a broad range of expertise in their therapist network. I really love working with them and I use their service. You can start communicating with a licensed therapist in under 24 hours. They'll assess your needs and match you with a licensed therapist that has the expertise that's perfect for whatever you need. You can schedule your weekly video or phone sessions. No sitting in uncomfortable waiting rooms like traditional therapy and BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches so they make it easy and free for you to change counselors if needed, which is really important. And it's more affordable than traditional offline counseling and financial aid is available so you can start living a happier, healthier life today. Visit their website, betterhelp.com slash reviews to see so many different reviews of people who have used this service. Join over 500,000 people who are taking this opportunity to help their mental health. And I really love them. And I think you will too. So you can get a special offer by using the code let it out to get 10% off your first month, betterhelp.com slash let it out and use the code let it out to get 10% off your first month. What's cool about BetterHelp is they, they it cuts down the time that it takes to go to therapy. If you're going to someone's office, you have to pack up your stuff and commute there and commute home. What's nice about seeing a therapist online, which is something that I do. It's something that a lot of my friends do. You do that too, Rose, right? You see your therapist over the internet. Yeah. It's great. A lot of people do it. It's easy. It cuts down on the time to actually have to go somewhere. And I think that it might be a great thing to try. Betterhelp.com, B-E-T-T-E-R, help.com slash let it out to get 10% off. 